0: Welcome back to uh, QAV. We have another special guest with us today, returning champion from a previous episode. Uh, I don't know a couple of years ago from Collins Street Value Fund, Michael Goldberg. Welcome back to our little radio show, Michael.
1: Cameron, Tony, good to see you both, and thanks for having me back. I thought for sure after last time that was a one and done, but the listeners are keen, and you think I've got something of value to say. I'm happy to share.
2: Oh, I think you do. Yeah, no, welcome back. Uh, out of all the people we've interviewed you're up, up there on the on the list it's great and it's great to have another value investor back on so we can gloat about all the tech stocks that have gone boom, gone bust <laughs> in the last 12 months since we last spoke
1: <laughs> i tell you what we were, we were having a look you know one of the filters we sometimes use is the the lowest share prices in the last 12 months we you know just have a look at see what's going on in the world we we're looking at it earlier this week and we just noted some of those growth stocks and i use growth in inverted commas They've been absolutely smashed. Some of these things are down 90 to 95%. And I knew that sector had a tough time, but not following it especially closely because it's not really in my wheelhouse. I was shocked. I mean, it's been carnaged. Unbelievable.
2: I had a similar sort of thought, Michael. Just recently, a couple of years ago, everyone was hammering us saying, "You know, can we use a method like yours, but to do it for growth stocks? And I started fiddling around and inverting our our checklist and came up with a trial portfolio. It didn't go anywhere. But I just happened to, I had a calendar note to check that trial portfolio this week, the start of June, and it was, it was way down. I'm so glad I couldn't find a way of, of, of getting a checklist to buy growth stocks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, sometimes there is nothing new. You know, sometimes everyone was so certain it's different this time, but ordinarily things are not different. You know, the, the same rules that applied 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago really do still apply today. And it was exciting why it lasted.
0: I've just got a clip I have to play whenever you say that, Michael. (laughs) This is uh, Alan Kohler on our show a couple of years ago.
2: It is different every time. It's always different, Tony. It's never the same.
0: There you go. I just say I'm obligated to play that every time we talk about this time it's different. (laughs) I want to ask a question, Michael. On our show we did, well, I don't know when I'm going to put this interview out actually. The show that we did in the first week of June, I um, read an article There was in the fin talking about the performance of Australian fund managers that one of our listeners sent to me. There was this quote that said, the average of 311 Australian large-cap active managers almost equaled index ETF returns before fees but fell short after fees, underperforming by 1.48% over five years. Some 80 large-cap managers outperformed the index ETF over five years while 231 funds underperformed. And we take cheap pot shots at fund managers all the time on our show for underperforming the index. But, and and I know you're not one of those, but you have a better perspective than we do because you actually run a fund. So from your view as a fund manager, why do you think the vast majority of active funds, not just in Australia, but we know this is a global
1: phenomenon, underperform? What are they doing wrong? I'm not sure that I'm the right person to ask questions about the broader fund management industry and fund management thinking. Because you know the, the way we view it is, yes, certainly we run a fund, but we invest in the same way we would or very close to the way we would if it was our own personal money. And so our mandate is quite unique. Our mandate is, you know, guys go out there and find your favorite 10, 15 ideas and invest in those particular positions. I think over the journey, the clients that we've attracted, you know, they recognize that we are a certain kind of fund and we're not trying to be everything to all people. And so they recognize and they appreciate that, you know, there, there might be more volatility, but when push comes to shock, we're really investing in our favorite ideas. And so if we know what we're doing, and so far it seems that we do, hopefully that's true and it continues for many, many more years, that will generate you know, attractive returns, I think for the broad majority of fund managers out there, especially those looking to attract institutional money, their job is not about generating absolute returns. Their their job is about generating returns relative to the index. And if that's your goal, then it makes sense that that's what you're achieving. I think, I forget if it was Buffett or Munger said, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. So if people are just trying to achieve index returns, that's what they're going to achieve we have very little consideration at call street for what the index is doing. If you ask me what the index has done over the last 12 months, six months or or five years, I can't tell you, I can look it up, but I can't say it's on my head because I honestly don't care. You know, our job and you know, everyone's job as an investor is just to focus on, on their favorite and best ideas. And hopefully if you're picking those stocks, right, you'll generate an attractive outcome. And for us, we don't care what the market is doing, but again, if your focus is is index returns or relative index returns, then it's not shocking that that's what they're achieving. But again, that's not what we're doing. It's clearly not what you guys are doing. So um, you might need another guess for better insight into the, the machinations and the going-ons behind the scene because that's not how we invest, and so I can't explain it for you.
2: Well, you make a good point about being anchored to the index. Even funds which are trying to beat the index, they really can't afford to underperform the index. So they tend to have overweight and underweight positions rather than absolute positions. I think that's a big difference too.
1: I wrote an article, it must have been a couple of years ago now. It was a quarterly report where I did some research into the number of index funds and I found some interesting data on what they called shadow index funds. So obviously you've got those index funds out there, those ETFs that they purport to, you know, they say you're going to get index returns if you invest with us. The report found something like globally over 80% It's my recollection of actively managed funds are actually shadow index funds with just a little bit of tweaking around the edges. And if that's true, it makes sense then, Cameron, to your point that the vast majority of funds, both in Australia and overseas, tend to really get index returns plus or minus a tiny amount.
2: Yeah, good point. Well, last time we were talking, I think one of the the things I took away from our discussion was you said, uh, why are you buying your 15th best idea when you can be buying your first best idea? And at that stage, your top idea was a play around uranium stocks. Can you maybe tell us how that finished up and how you, if you're still in them and how you got out and what your current number one thesis is?
1: Goodness. Straight to the big questions, (laughs) 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 Ted.
2: I'm the hard-hitting one. Cameron's the jokes. I'm the hard-hitting one.
1: (laughs) Look, yeah, we were very happy with the way things panned out. We were super early. We took the view in about 2017 that it looked to us that there was disconnect between the demand and the supply and the costs for a pound of uranium and having done our research we decided that we wanted to take a position and as i mentioned to you we essentially bought a basket of of australian uranium positions we literally sat on our thumbs for i think it was three and a half years with the share prices doing absolutely nothing and then all of a sudden i'm not even sure what the catalyst was what was scary and ugly Uranium suddenly became popular and green. And almost overnight, it was the end of 2020, almost overnight, these, these companies that we'd bought, or we could have bought a month earlier at 10 cents, Paladin specifically, was all of a sudden 45, 50 cents, 55 cents. So we sat down, Vast and I and we said, look, you know, we bought these things for a particular thematic. We think that that the spot price is too cheap relative to the cost of production. We think that uranium has a future as an energy source, being the only baseload energy source at the moment, as far as I'm aware, um, that can create or provide that base load and also is emissions free. And so when share prices had suddenly gone up by four or five fold, we had to sit down and decide for ourselves, are we now interested at all? Can we continue investing in this space or is holding a position from here just pure speculation? So we sat down and we used Paladin as our proxy because that is the the, the major player in the Australian market. It's also a player that has some actual earnings. And we essentially did a DCF We made some assumptions around what we thought the long-term price would be for for spot uranium. I think at the time, the actual price was high 30s or 40s. We assumed a long-term price of about 70, notwithstanding that it could and probably will overshoot that at some point. But we thought long-term, let's call it 70 cents. And let's plug in the different data points and see what we come back with. And we came back with a number of around about 50, 55 cents. So the point that the the share prices got to about 55 cents and the whole market moves more or less in tandem, not perfectly, but more or less. We decided to exit our position. We exited most of our non-paladin positions. Paladin was the last position we got out of because it was the biggest position that we had. And it took about three days, three business days from the time that we sold it at about 55 cents for it to get to 75 cents. <laughs> it took about another four days before it hit a dollar. <laughs> so Tony, I I know, I know that your systems have momentum sort of filters in place and so had we been following your instructions we never would have mucked up like that but for us for us it's funny it's a funny story but at the end of the day our view is you know if you're investing in the company invest in it at the point that it becomes speculative you have to decide do you want to speculate and there's nothing wrong with speculating or do you want to be investing and we decided that we want to be investing and so we took that money and put it into the next idea which was uh beach beach energy oh well done hey! yeah. We took a similar view with beach energy that we had with uranium, actually. It was quite interesting how the transition worked. But, you know, people hated uranium. We liked it before it was cool. When it became cool, we exited. And similarly with, with beach, I mean, we got in, must have been August August of 21, after it had fallen from about $1.80 down to $1.10. And we're looking at this business, which is fundamentally sound. It had a, it had a downgrade on one of its projects of about, I forget what it was, but it, the, net, the net impact was about 4%. And yet you've wiped off 40% of the share price. It was trading a massive discount to its peers. And we said to ourselves, this is absurd. Everyone hates fossil fuels. Yes, there'll be a transition at some point in the future, but we're talking a decade plus, not a year plus. So we made a call and we invested in Beach, And we actually invested in a few other fossil fuel related service companies as well, which uh, which has played out quite interestingly. And I think will continue to play out quite interestingly for a few years to come. So.
2: I was playing golf yesterday with a chap and uh, he was asking you for stock tips and about the portfolio. And I said, well, I've got a lot of, done well out of oil stocks and I'm doing a well lot of coal stocks. And he said, oh, you must be unpopular. And I said, I might be unpopular, but I'm very profitable. <laughs> <laughs> Not unpopular with our club members though. Tony. Oh, true. Yeah. They're profiting too.
1: We've had questions both when we were investing in uranium and more recently when we are investing in, in fossil fuels in general, oil and gas specifically, We've had an investment in coal in the past, although our investment in coal has tended to be in met coal, not thermal coal. But the question was, don't you feel uncomfortable on an ESG basis? And I don't know what people mean when they say ESG, because I think it means different things to different people. And I don't think there is a specific definition that anyone would, that everyone would be perfectly satisfied with.
2: But I said, look, you
1: know, we recognize with fossil fuels specifically that we expect there will be a transition over the next generation. but there's just no way to turn off those carbon emitting energy sources without essentially killing half of Africa, South America, and Asia. Like these things are essential to turn on lights, to, to do the cooking and whatnot. And I think in the first world, in the, in the Western world, it's it's all well and good for us to say, look, we've got a target to move to zero emissions and whatnot. And I think it's very important that we eventually get there. But it's also important to remember or to recognize that these companies have been taking off production in anticipation of a fall away from demand but demand's actually increasing demand's increasing from what i can understand well into the 2030s so it just seems to us like there's there's a massive disconnect i think people see the increasing popularity of electric vehicles and assume that vehicle fuel consumption is is a major part of of oil consumption and it's just not it's about 15% of global usage so i think People are investing or not investing in this space based on how they feel about the industry rather than the intrinsic value of the underlying companies and their their earnings. And when we recognize as value investors that the market are behaving emotionally and valuing these things based on emotions rather than analytics, that's where opportunity lies. I mean, it it sounds to me like you're seeing the same thing or thinking the same thing as we are in space.
2: Well, you said it before, you hit the nail on the head when you said you sold uranium stocks when they became cool. I think cool must be the enemy of stock investing. As soon as something becomes cool, run a mile. When it's uncool is the time to buy it.
1: I've been uncool since uh, grade one, so I'm just just Although Buffett's done
0: pretty well out of his Apple investment and Apple's still pretty cool, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, I think you're right, Tony.
1: So I think, to your point there, Cameron, it's recognising what other people don't. So when you're investing in things that are uncool, as we're discussing now, it's easy to understand what people are missing. I think Buffett probably had some very special insight into the prospects of Apple and recognized growth that perhaps the market wasn't recognizing and that's how he's profited there. But certainly Apple is cool, but he recognized it as being even cooler than the market recognized, if, if, if I write. I'm not even sure Buffett's
2: behind the investment in Apple. I think it might be one of the Todd's You think he got bullied into it? Not bullied into it. They've got a certain portfolio and it's just, Grown big enough to pop on the Berkshire Hathaway Disclosure Radar. Fair enough. Anyway, so that we're talking about your number one idea. What's your current number one idea? What What can you pass on to us?
1: Well, look, I mean, I think we still like beach for all the reasons that we just discussed. We actually launched about nine months ago a special fund. It's closed, so I don't want to focus on it too much. But in our research for both beach and um, MMA offshore, which we also hold a, a relatively decent position in, we uncovered this whole subsector called Offshore oil services companies, and because there are, there's no competition other than MMA on the Aussie market, we actually, you know, we wanted to invest it in ourselves, so we thought perhaps some of our investors would like to invest in it, and we floated the idea, and there was a tremendous amount of interest, and so we launched a fund that specifically invested in offshore oil services companies. Obviously, the, our mandate for the for the flagship fund doesn't allow us to invest overseas, and that's why we launched a new fund, and that's done really well. And I think again, fossil fuels in general, whether it's oil, whether it's gas, whether it's coal, as you were mentioning, Tony, coal's been doing absolutely amazing. I think that whole space is going to be very, very interesting in the next five, 10 years. I think if you want to spend me down on something more near term, I think probably my favorite idea at the moment is a takeover, a takeover arbitrage in link administration. Do you guys know it at all?
2: Yeah, well, the share industry company,
1: yeah. That's right. they also a major owner of um of the Pexa PEXA product. So over the last 18 months or so, they've got some three or four takeover offers at north of $5 per share. And they finally landed on an offer from the Canadian firm called Dyer Denim, listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange, for $5.50 plus a chance of another 13 or 15 cents, depending on if, if they sell one of the side businesses in the next 12 months. So obviously the market's been a, an interesting place for the last few months and Dyer & Denim has seen their, their share price fall quite considerably. But the offer is binding. The financing is locked in. And the takeover company have expressed to their shareholders at the quarterly conference that they view Link as transformative for their business. They seem very, very keen. There is still a little bit of concern around the regulator in Australia. The HCCC has some concerns around the monopolistic circumstances of PEXA. But the share price off the back of both the regulator expressing some concerns and the share price fall from the takeover company in Canada has seen the share price fall from about $5.20. To as a lot of think, about four dollars ten. So it's currently trading around about four dollars twenty five as we sit here in the second week of June. And we just think if you take into account all the considerations, you think about all the risks versus all the rewards, and you take into account the time frame, which we think is only about four months, if things pan out well, then there's some twenty two to twenty five percent return in four months, which is obviously very, very attractive. If things don't play out, you know our view is that the sum of the parts are probably worth certainly more than four, probably more than four fifty. And you've got every chance that some of these other players who had made offers but were beaten out by D&D could come back. So we think on the balance of the risk versus the reward over the next four months, if we can make 25% out of, uh, out of link administration, we think that's a, a pretty interesting investment to make. Again, I'm not here to offer financial advice. You guys should all plug it into Tony's model and see what it tells you. But uh, we have a bit and, and we're quietly confident.
2: I don't think it'll come out that well in my model, but that's in the checklist. It's not on our buy list, but I understand you're playing a takeover play in that situation. That's it. I mean, you're talking about a takeover situation now. Have you changed the way you invest because of where the market is at the moment in this cycle?
1: I think our basic process and philosophy is unchanged. You know, we, we stick to anything you know, in much the same way that just because interest rates are going up, but just because we've had some volatility in the markets, you wouldn't be sitting there trying to meddle around with your spreadsheet and your models. And similarly, we're not looking to mess around with our spreadsheet models. But what we certainly have found is last 12, 18 months, it has been much more difficult to find attractive ideas. I suspect it's because, the, well, until, until very recently, the world we were living in was essentially zero cost of capital, which means that every asset price is inflated, which makes it harder for a value investor. And so what we've actually found ourselves doing over the last 12-ish months is topping up on, on stocks that we already like that we think are flying under the radar participating in takeover arbitrages or companies that are trading at what we think is a significant discount to the sum of their parts, and also signing some convertible notes, which we think are quite attractive in in any circumstance. So it's certainly been tougher. I was having a chat with Rob, our head of distribution yesterday, we were talking about interest rates going up and he posited, and I think it's 100% right, that for value investors, we'd probably rather see higher interest rates. I'm not talking about super high interest rates, but normalized interest rates rather than the environment we've seen for the last few years. Because in an environment where the cost of capital is zero, well then long-dated assets trade on all sorts of silly multiples that seem to have only been invented yesterday. And eventually the market comes to expect that for all the different sorts of companies. So you know there's been plenty of tomfoolery, you know, there's been plenty of invented you know, measures of appropriate value. I thought it was crazy enough to have a to have a multiple of price to revenue. And then they invented price to addressable market. Like it, it almost couldn't get crazier.
2: <laughs> it's like the old price to eyeballs. that was in the dot-com booth. Yeah.
1: I'll tell you what. I saw a meme this morning. I forget where I was. Maybe I got it on the WhatsApp. It was rest in peace, price to revenue multiples, 2017 to 2022. And then underneath, <laughs> it was fun while it lasted.
0: <laughs> but it'll be back. Give it four oh, yeah. years.
1: Four years it'll be back. That's it. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Everything everything goes and comes back and goes in roundabouts. But we tried not to get caught up in it. Certainly, we got dragged into conversations around these sorts of companies because that was what was topical. And our our feedback and our thoughts tended to be, we wish the investors in these companies the absolute best of luck and success. It's not what we do. It's not for us. So our viewers, maybe the world had changed, but good luck to everybody else.
2: Yeah. And like I'd like your take on it. But a few years ago value investing was dead, but I've, I've been doing it for twenty-five years, Buffett's been doing it for 50 or 60 years. I mean you've been doing it for a long time too. It never goes out of style. I mean maybe the definition of value goes out of style, but uh you, you just keep seeing to cruising through in all phases of the market really.
1: Yeah, I think the reports of value's demise was grossly <laughs> exaggerated. But I think it was because we were seeing such absurd and crazy returns from the broader market. So I've been asked many times for the last few years, you know, what's your thought on value investing? Is it dead? Has has the game changed? And and they point to value investment funds having underperformed the market. And every time I come back and I say, look, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but, but I think your starting point might be off. I think if you ask the most value investors what their goal is, if they're being honest about value investing and, and their actual goals, they wouldn't say to outperform the market. What they would say is we want to generate an appropriate amount of return for an appropriate amount of risk. And on that basis, I suspect that most value investors, even through the last five years, would have been fairly happy with what that achieved, aside from market expectations and investor expectation. I mean, we've done well over the journey. I think we're running at about 19% over the last five years. So we certainly don't believe the premise that value investing is dead. Perhaps you've got to evolve your thinking. Perhaps you've got to broaden your horizons as to what qualifies as, as, as value. But I think most value investors, if they're honest with themselves, would have been satisfied with the returns that they generated over the last five years. But relative to markets going bonkers, it does look like it's out of favor. So again, I think it's a a faulty premise, but I understand why it's being made.
2: Well, I want to beat the index for sure. It doesn't have to be every year, but over the long term. But when novice investors start saying things like, why aren't we invested in the US because their market's up 25% this year, you know they haven't seen a cycle turn. Really? And it's, they're just chasing the, the latest hot hand. You can't do that.
1: Well, you know what? I mean, we were talking about it the other day as well in the office. We're talking about ARK funds management and how many people would have gotten burnt by that and burnt by investing in a whole bunch of growth stocks over the, um, over the journey. And again, we were talking about how awful it is, not for the instos. The instos would have a, an appropriate allocation to these sorts of investments, and they'll do just fine. The problem is all those poor mums and dads who saw all of this excitement and poured far too much of their available capital into these ideas in anticipation that what happened yesterday is certainly going to happen tomorrow, and it breaks my heart. And it's why people like you and QAV podcast and and the training that you provide to your listeners is so important. These mistakes happen, these tragedies, or these you know these, these outcomes happen because people don't understand what they're getting themselves into. So, look, I mean, you can't have. A, uh, well, maybe you should, but I, I don't think you can have a questionnaire when you sign up to your CommSec or your E-Trade or whatever it is, saying, are you sophisticated enough to understand what you're investing in? Because people would say, it's my money, I can do what I want. But really, the biggest danger for an investor is being uninformed and mis- or misunderstanding what they're investing in. And I think that's where most of the damage happens.
0: Yeah, I was having lunch yesterday with uh, one of our members who works for the Australian Shareholders Association. And we were sort of talking about the role of education and educating, particularly new investors and millennials. And just think about how much money millennials have lost in the last year with crypto and afterpay and, and whatever. And I was telling him, you know, my story. I worked in the stock market when I was 19, 20 for a few years. And then I was in the dot-com, I worked at Microsoft during the dot-com period in the 90s and invested in a lot of my friends' IPOs, tech IPOs, that kind of stuff. And when they all crashed and burned and I lost everything by the time the dot-com crash happened, I was probably about 30. That put me off investing for 20 years. It wasn't until Tony and I started the podcast that I started investing again because it scared me off. I, I lost, I didn't lose tens of thousands of dollars, but it was like, oh shit, okay, well, I, obviously I'm not smart enough to invest. <laughs> I better, as opposed to Tony's response when he lost money, when he got started was, I get a, I better learn how to be good at this. <laughs> for me, and, and I and I suspect a lot of other people, it just scares you off and that's it. You don't invest, you don't build a portfolio maybe for the rest of your life. That's It's a tragedy, right?
1: It is a tragedy, and I think the problem is that most people get involved in investing without understanding what they're investing in, and then can't understand why it didn't work out. And if it's all just too hard, then the easiest thing is sticking money in the bank. <laughs> I don't know what's the alternative. Uh, that's not been a great alternative either recently. But yeah, look, it's it is it's a it's one of the greatest tragedies that that people spend their lifetimes earning this capital, and then just on the back of Momentum or excitement, or whatever the case may be, they're they're happy to go and risk it. They they sacrifice. They literally sacrifice their life and their time with their children to make this money, and then they seem so keen to to speculate on things they don't understand. I don't get it. I don't get it. I guess I guess it's sort of there's potentially a rush and and the excitement that you get from investing in these spaces. But you know, again, I think the most important thing for for most investors is just to understand the difference between speculating and investing. And each time you allocate your money somewhere, no, work out: are you investing or are you speculating? And don't don't fool yourself to think you're doing one when you're really doing the other. I think I think that's a big challenge, but I think it's super important.
0: How do you define those two? We we talk about that a lot, but I'm interested in your definition of investing versus speculating.
1: I mean, I suppose very high level, we have our model which we use and we tweak depending on the different sort of company, depending on the sort of sector, where we'll generate. A intrinsic value for a particular business. And at the point that it reaches that intrinsic value, all other things being equal, that's the time at which we would sell it because any any future growth or any future returns would be on the back of something unexpected, which is speculation. Or in our view, to quote Warren Buffett and Bertrand Hathaway, a greater fool coming along and being prepared to pay more than what we think it's worth. So, you know, it's hard to draw a specific and bold line at which point you go exactly from investing to speculating. And there is a, you know, certainly a region of of grey zone, but at some point it becomes clear that we've gotten what we hope from from an investment. And it's time to move on. And, and until then, you know, you just, I guess, we, we reassess our positions on an ongoing basis to make sure that the story remains sound and in place. We reassess what we think the intrinsic value is based on our evolving understanding of the business and the and the environment. And again, at the point that that business gets to what we think it's worth. We'll exit it. And as per the example of Paladin, we'll often leave plenty of money on the table for the next guy. But we're okay with that. We're okay with that.
2: Absolutely, I agree. For me, it's uh, it's are you doing something rationally or are you doing something because of human behavior? And that's another issue is like when I think about the people who are buying ARC funds or Bitcoin or whatever, they were doing it because their friends were telling them that, hey, I made $10,000 last week out of Bitcoin. And they, they had a FOMO rush. So. If you, you need to get to the stage where you can say to yourself, am I doing this because of the way my brain is wired or am I doing it rationally? Am I going in with my eyes open? That's the difference between investing and speculation, I think.
1: Yeah. So my brother, whom I love very much, he's a chippy, and he started having strong opinions and advice about investing in cryptocurrency. So if your local chippy is the expert in crypto, could be he is. He's a clever boy and I love him very much, but uh, it's 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 a little bit of a worry. When everyone and their dog and your cab driver and your chippy and you know all of these people start getting super excited. Again, if, if you're allocating your your punting money and it's either that or betting on Collingwood on the weekend, that's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with that. That's fine. But if you're putting your life savings in these sorts of things, I just it hurts my soul to think that people did that without understanding the risk they were taking on. And to the extent that you're gonna risk money, it's just it's just so important to understand what what you're investing in. And look, you can't ever be fully informed unless you're inside the business, unless you fully engage with the industry and all things that might come out of left field. But to the extent that you can that you can tool yourself up with all the information that's available out there, like we, we just think you'd be bonkers to not.
2: And that's hard to do. I mean, that's a hard way to invest as well. If you know so much about one industry or one company, you're buying and selling that company for the rest of your life. And that's the only stock you can invest in, right? So it's, it's like buying a house, I guess. It's different to being able to do what you did with with the uranium and get out when you thought the price was right and go into something different. So it's, that's a different kettle of fish too. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, listen, let me come back to a term you used before, which we haven't discussed on our podcast, and it might be of interest to some of our listeners. You talked about convertible notes. Can you tell us what that's about and what they are?
1: Well, convertible notes are an interesting An interesting structure. The industry or the experience in the Australian market is pretty immature. And so, you know, I think different people might have very different views as to what a convertible note looks like. And I certainly can't speak to what other firms do either locally or overseas, but I can tell you what we do and how we approach convertible notes. And hopefully that gives your, your investors a sort of a sense of broadly what they are and how they work, and then more specifically how we approach them. So, essentially a convertible note is we issue a loan to a company with a fixed maturity date and the conversion part is that we have the right but not the obligation that at any time between the first time we lend the money until the maturity date we can convert that loan into equity at a predetermined share price. So the way we approach it is we're looking for companies that we think we like in industries that we like and we think the growth profile of aspects of that business quite attractive and so if we approach a company let's call it trading at 10 cents on the market we'll say look you guys need some money we understand you need some money else if you do need some money we're happy to lend it to you and we will set the conversion price at a premium to the prevailing share price if they if if the negotiations are at 10 cents we'll agree that at any time the next let's call it three years we can convert that loan to equity at 15 cents and of course if the share price goes well and they use the money we've given them Effectively, the share price might get up to twenty cents. At which point, we might decide that it's reached what we think it's worth. And instead of asking for our money back at the end of the three years, we'd convert it into equity, and then we'd be able to sell it into the market at twenty cents per share. Now, it's attractive for a couple of reasons. Number one, it often provides like a, a coupon, so you're getting interest on on the loan. Our loans, at least, are secured against the assets of the company, so we're essentially a creditor. On the downsides, so if things don't go well and things don't play out, then when maturity comes in two or three years time, we can ask for our money back. And if they can't fund that redemption, then we have control or reach on their assets. And of course, if things do go well, as we hope they do, and they they have historically done quite well for us, we get most of the upside that you would have from regular equity exposure. So. Um, I can walk you through an example of these sorts of things if you like, but essentially it's attractive to us because we get security from the downside with most of the upside of equity. And it's attractive for for the companies because they get to get financing quickly without having to go through all of the rigmarole of raising raising debt through the banking system, through the, the major banking system, without having to need to go to market and doing a heavily dilutionary capital raising. So it's not a product or an approach that I think has been used widely in Australia. With the companies we've spoken to, they've been quite attracted to it. In fact, we had a conundrum within our our flagship fund, within the Conspiratory Value Fund, that obviously we're a liquid fund. So we need to remain liquid at all times to to fund opportunities, withdrawals, whatever the case may be. And we found ourselves all of a sudden, I think because the current market environment is the way that it is, that all of a sudden we were were finding these deals coming across our table where, where companies have said, look, we're really interested in this convertible note offer that you guys have? Can, you know, can we engage in conversations to potentially borrow money from you? And to the extent that we could fit it within our flagship fund, we were happy to, but there are limitations, right? So we decided that, that we shouldn't have more than say 20 odd percent of our portfolio invested in these illiquid contracts. And so the question became when number 21 came along, what do we do with it? Do we break our rule and become less liquid in the flagship fund? You know, do we say no to it altogether because we're full or do we find some alternative. And so much in the same way we came about, you know, the special situation fund in the offshore oil services sector, Vass and I, we thought convertible notes are attractive. We thought perhaps some of our investors will think similarly. And we went out there to see if there was any appetite to create what I suppose I refer to as an overflow fund for the convertible notes, for any convertible note that would like to have in the fund, but we can't because we're full, let's create this new fund. And the response was overwhelming. I mean, it it was a little bit different to our flagship fund in so much as, you know, this new fund, is able to create a distribution, a regular distribution. And on top of that, obviously, you've got the upside potential from from capital gains if things go really well. So we did a capital raising, which was very, very popular. We only raised the amount of money that we needed for the deals we had on the table. And the idea is as we go forwards, anytime we have a new deal that needs funding, we'll go and seek out that funding. But yeah, I mean, I'm super attracted for, I suppose, three reasons. Number one, you get the security protection. Number two, you get the opportunity of the equity exposure. And number three, it also allows us to invest in companies that might have otherwise been too small for us. It creates the liquidity event for us. So you know, if if we are reliant on the market to create liquidity, then we can't invest in smaller companies because we want to invest in a meaningful way relative to our funds under management. And there are simply plenty of companies out there that might be attractive, but we can't get enough of it. Whereas with the convertible note, if things don't play out, the company creates that liquidity event for us in paying us back our, our capital. And if things do play out, Well, our experience in markets suggests that when a company does really well, even if it might have started off as illiquid, when things start to go according to plan, the liquidity gets created through the marketplace. So yeah, it's really interesting. You've got the security, you've got the upside, and you've got the ability to get the uh, the liquidity. So for those three reasons, we're really attracted to that space.
2: Yeah, I think it's a a creative solution to the problem of how do you invest in the liquid stocks in small companies if you have a large amount of money to invest. Yeah, good Good on you.
1: I mean, the, the challenge we've faced is that Often in the first instance, when we talk about convertible notes to Australian companies, a lot of them, the only experience I've got with convertible notes is through the American system. And a lot of the American convertible notes, they're issued at a discount at a discount to the prevailing share price. And so you get a situation where if the company's not doing great, the lender can just dump stock on the market, convert part and dump stock on the market. And you've got this situation where it's essentially just you know, going down the drain. So that's not the way we go about it. But certainly, given that it's a private contract, every deal will be different. We're looking to support the companies. We're looking to benefit from the company's long-term performance. And, uh, yeah, it's it's worked for us over the journey and hopefully in the new fund and the new structure, it works for us as well and for our clients. And I guess
2: um, the concept might be, our listeners may be familiar with the concept, but uh, through different names or different structures, it sounds a lot like a bank hybrid in some respects.
1: Maybe. I think of it more like a first mortgage. You know, we've got security against the assets. We've got a fixed coupon. And at the end, you'd expect to get back your capital. Hybrids tend to be far <laughs> more complicated, especially nowadays. I think if you go back 10 years, it was pretty simple. You lend the bank your money, you get a, an interest, you know, either a fixed interest or a floating rate interest. In the day, you get your cash back. Nowadays, there are clauses and conversions and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that they sneak in there. And are you really excited by 4% from? Commonwealth Bank or Westpac with no prospect of upside. For some people, it suits. That doesn't excite me. You know, I'd, I'd rather own farmland, which I know I can sell for twice the amount that we've lent them, if push came to shove, paying 8 to 10% with the prospect of significant capital gains. So I understand why people might say, well, little commodity company feels scary and big corporate bank feels safe. But um, I'm not convinced that the risk is what people think. And I'm not convinced you're being paid enough for the risk you're actually taking.
2: You should tell us when you write these notes, so that we can go and invest in the stock as well. It's obviously a, a vote of confidence in the future of that company.
1: Well, you'll see the announcements after we do the deal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, I think I'm exhausted. My questions, Cam. Do you have any?
0: No, only the one I opened with that uh, Michael very politically avoided answering.
1: Remind me if you want me to get unpolitical. I, I can for a minute. <laughs> Just about why major why, why active funds don't perform very well. Look. To be frank, I think the clear answer is that most funds that claim to be active are not active. I think that's the long and short of it. I think most funds, especially once they get large, have no choice but to be index huggers. And that's why we have capacity constraints. That's why we've we've told the market that we expect to close our fund when we get to about four, four, fifty million. And I suspect, Tony, you know, with your system as well, there's only so far you can go before you start eating your own lunch. So Look, I don't think it's complicated, Cameron. I, th- I think as you grow, the pool of available investments for you shrinks to the point that you've got to basically buy the bigger stocks. And once you're buying the bigger stocks, you're essentially an index fund.
0: Index hugger.
1: Like index it. hugger.
0: Yeah, you're, you're just an index hugger. It's going to be my new insult to people.
1: Everyone needs a good cuddle from time to time. <laughs> if that's what you're after, then that's fine. But just like investing in growth stocks, Investing in a fund, you should find out if you're investing in an index fund or you're, if you're investing in a fund that's going to make a difference by investing specifically and taking advantage of their expertise. We, we think you're crazy. We think anyone who doesn't invest in a concentrated manner is bonkers. But again, different strokes for different folks. Just know what you're investing in, I think, is the general lesson I put out there. Yeah,
2: good point. And
0: how how are you doing for this financial year? We're about to wrap it up in a couple of weeks. You want to share your performance with us?
1: not sure what we've done for the financial I think for the 12 months, we're about 15% for the 12 months, 15 and a half percent. Over three years, it comes to about 26-ish percent per annum. And since the journey started about six and a half years ago, we're talking about just about 18%. I think it might be a smidge over or a smidge under 18% per annum. So we're pretty happy with how things are going.
0: 15% in the last 12 months. That's pretty good.
1: Well, hang on. I'm in great company here. Yeah. I'm still not clear why you guys are talking to me about ideas when you've got Tony <laughs> sitting in the box below me, but look, we, we all do our best with uh, with the processes and systems that we have in place. And had somebody asked me when we launched this thing, what would you be satisfied? What would you be happy with? I would have said, if we can generate double digit returns somewhere between 12 and 15% off the fees, we would be thrilled. And to have been able to achieve what we have since the launch, and despite all of the challenges that the market have thrown our way is just I think it's fantastic, and hopefully we can we can get similar returns for many years to come.
0: Just by way of comparison, the dummy portfolio that we've been running for three years um, for the last twelve months is up six point eight percent, versus the SPDR 200, which we benchmark against, which is up two point one four percent over the same period. So our sort of benchmark is are we beating the index long-term, obviously, as Tony keeps uh, uh, forecasting. We will have bad years when we will not beat the index, and that's okay. I think um, over since inception, I think we're up like 27% over the three years or something like that, but it's been a tough year. It's been, uh, you know, lots of ups and downs, very turbulent, lots of issues in the last 12 months, so you've done very well.
2: Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, I agree, and we, we get you back because you're a value investor and you're successful, and it's great to have. Uh, well, it's great to have an echo chamber of value investors, but ah. it's, uh, it's especially in our game where the echo chamber usually only has one or two voices in it. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I still think we should
0: we should have our value investor conference, the Australian value investor conference, where we get. Michael and uh, Tobias Carlo we'll get him to fly back in and we'll get all the value investors, uh, Roger Montgomery, uh, if he's still a value investor, <laughs>
1: and uh, I don't know. Who else, Michael? Who else? I don't know. Oh, I'm well. just thinking that we should have you guys over for lunch sometime so we can argue over momentum investing. I think that's probably where we diverge a little bit. But, uh, look, it's nice to get affirmation, but it's it's better to become a better investor. So it's, it's good to hang out with people who disagree with you on all sorts of things. So.
2: Good investing is good stealing, I think, Michael. So, yeah, it's good to take ideas wherever they come.
1: Correct. That's it. I don't need to invent the wheel. I just need to work out how to use it effectively. Correct, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the next time we're in Melbourne, uh, we'd, like, yeah, we'd love to catch up. We'd also love to invite you along to our QAV Club dinner. You can be a special guest at one of our dinners down there. That'd be fun too. If we can make it work, that'd be great.
2: Yeah. Well, Cameron's about to swan off to the US for a month, so it might have to be in a couple of months' time.
0: When I get back, we'll come down to Melbourne and we'll do a dinner, I think.
1: Whereabouts in the state are you going?
0: Oh, uh, Utah, Arizona, Grand Canyon, uh, doing lots of national parks. My wife's an American, so we're going over to visit her family primarily, which live in those couple of states mostly. But uh, do lots of national parks, lots of camping and hiking and that kind of stuff, which I really appreciate about the United States. Staying
1: clear of the coast is probably a good bet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just getting out into the landscape. Landscape is amazing. The cities, nice no, fun to visit briefly,
1: but, you know. Some of the American regions are absolutely spectacular. My wife's actually from Michigan, and there's not a heck of a lot going on in Detroit in the last few years. Yeah.
2: I love Detroit. Well, what do you love about it? I was there about five years ago, and, and uh, it was like a bombed out city. Ah, Yeah. But there were bars coming back and every third, every third building was derelict, but someone had set up a bar in it and it was just brilliant. It was great. And all the arts culture was just coming back. And it was even a shop and I bought a T-shirt and it it's, uh, was called Nothing Stops Detroit. And I just loved that fighting spirit. It was great.
1: It was really strange for me. I think it was about 10 years ago when we were there. My wife, like I said, is from Michigan. And um, I was coming back from the hockey. My father-in-law had taken me to the hockey. And we drove past this magnificent but clearly derelict building. And explained to me that it was the old central train station, just totally abandoned, totally abandoned. I, just, I I, couldn't fathom how such a thing could happen. You know, coming from Australia, people don't just pick up and move locations. You know, the infrastructure is there and you hold on to it with dear life.
2: <laughs> or you sell it.
1: You sell it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's actually some stunning natural beauty in middle America, both in the USA and in Canada, that even if nothing else gets you, just... The natural beauty of some of those regions, is just absolutely mind-blowing. It's gorgeous. I'm sure, Cameron, you'll have an absolutely amazing time.
0: Yeah, it was like before I met my wife, you know, I worked for Microsoft, as I said earlier. So I'd been to the US many, many, many times over the years, but it was always Seattle, New York, New Orleans, LA, San Francisco. It wasn't until she goes, no, no, no. I'll show you the real
1: <laughs> country, uh, middle of America.
0: The real, yeah. i will take you to Zion National Park and Bryce Canyon and Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon. And yeah, uh, I, I love, yeah, I love all that part of America. And I love the driving around and stopping at the little diners on the highway in the middle of nowhere. And I love that middle America kind of straight out of a Oliver Stone or a Tarantino film kind of uh, vibe, David Lynch vibe.
1: Hopefully, less violence in the Tarantino movie, but uh... <laughs> yeah,
0: hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun as always. So let's let's not leave it another two years before you come back on the show,
1: Michael. It's a thrill and a pleasure to hang out with you, and we should do it more often. Agreed. I agree. Well done. Thanks, Michael. All right. Keep well, guys. Bye. Bye.
0: The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorized representative of AFS, cell 520442, AFS representative number 001292718. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.